In its 2020 glass ceiling report, Law360 found that, quote, law firms continue to make only minimal progress in their efforts to dispel the barriers women face, especially as they move up in the ranks. Notably, women make up more than half of all law school graduates, but only 40% of practicing lawyers, with women representing around 25% of partners, 22% of equity partners, and 28% of firm executive committees. It's also been reported that there's a 53% difference in average pay between male and female lawyers in large law firms across the country. Cynics argue that this is a problem that will not change, that society dictates women and not men must find a way to balance careers with raising children and other family obligations. But others posit that there's been progress, and over the last couple of years, law firms have endeavored to not only have substantive conversations about diversity and inclusion, but have taken actual steps to achieve and sustain a diverse workplace that better reflects society at large. Could they both be right? Welcome back to Mintz's Health Law Diagnosed, a podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Neely Yolen, and today we're examining gender equity in the law, the rise of women in health law, and what it means to be a mentor and an advocate. Here to discuss these incredibly important issues with me is my partner, Susan Burson. Susan is the managing member of the firm's DC office. She also serves on the firm's policy committee and is division head of Mintz's health law, communications, and antitrust practices, as well as ML Strategies, the firm's government relations affiliate. Susan, thank you so much for joining me. I can't tell you how excited I am to be having this conversation with you. Thanks, Neely. It's great to be here. Happy to chat. Before we get into the substance of the podcast, I'd love it if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background, where you're from, why you decided to go to law school, and so on. Sure. So my decision to go to law school is not one that was made early on in my life, my college career, the like. Um, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey, first generation going to college. Went to college thinking that I would go into probably biology, become a doctor maybe, go into research. That did not work out at all because I couldn't do the bio labs and dissect frogs and the like. So I turned to thinking about what else I enjoyed and ended up being a political science major with a minor in philosophy. But health policy always fascinated me. At the time that I was in college, it wasn't really an area But I knew that it was an area of great interest to me. And it was something that I kept in the back of my mind while deciding to go to law school to practice more in the employee benefits area. I ended up in health law really by happenstance when really in the late 80s, when health law started to become a thing and a lot of the laws were being passed around kickbacks and various financial arrangements in healthcare, and I was approached by my firm's management, I was practicing in New York at the time, and asked if I had an interest in healthcare, and would I be willing to take this on as a practice area? Well, that was an opportunity I jumped at. It resulted in me making partner at my firm and really starting to build out a health practice, looking at financial arrangements with physicians, with those that invest in and 
provide services to the healthcare industry because my firm was more of a boutique doing a lot of work in private equity. So you didn't have a health lawyer mentor specifically. You were the health lawyer in your firm. Is that right? That's a great way of putting it. I I guess I never thought about it that way, but I was the health lawyer. (laughs) When I was in law school, I think health law existed, but I knew nothing about it. And I know this isn't about me, but I want to just add we had the opportunity to dabble in a few of the firm's practice areas. And when it came to health law, somebody dumped on me a six-inch binder of anti-kickback and Stark Law cases. Well, at the time, if you recall, we actually had to print out cases from Westlaw and asked me to review them and update them and make sure that they were all still good law. And that was it. I was hooked. So It does hook you. It does. It's a wonderful combination of policy and law, of realizing that this is just such a core right of individuals. And so it permeates so many different areas that it definitely does hook you. It really does. So how long were you practicing at that law firm before you made a move? I practiced at that firm for 15 years And probably would have stayed there except that the firm merged with a Canadian firm. And as we can all probably imagine, healthcare in Canada is very different than healthcare in the U.S. It's not a business, really. At least at that time, it wasn't. So it actually, coupled with the fact that I, on a personal level, was struggling to commute to New York City from Connecticut with three very small children and looking for the opportunity to be able to live in more of an urban sprawl and and not have that pressure, I decided I wanted to move to D.C., which is really the capital of not just the country, but of regulated industries such as healthcare. And so I joined Mintz, actually, because I knew a partner at Mintz, and it gave me the opportunity to be in D.C. and to become part of a much bigger health practice. And what was your practice like at that time? A lot of private equity work, a lot of roll-ups of different types of practices, whether PT, OT, veterinary medicine, behavioral health, things of that sort, really very PE-focused. It shifted a lot when I came to D.C., and it's morphed many times over the years, but at that time, it really was very heavy on the PE side, which has formed a great foundation for me because I think I understand the business of health law as well as the legal requirements. And I learned those really early on in my career, which I think has been very helpful. And then at some point in your career, you made the decision to go in-house. I think it was in 2006 when you became general counsel of the public and senior markets group at United. What were your responsibilities there? Tell us exactly what you did and also what prompted the move. So I had started doing a great deal of work for United in about 2001 when they were entering into their PBM agreement with Medco, which had just been spun out from Merck, and also building competencies in that area in-house. And so I got to know a lot of the folks there, both on the pharmacy side as well as the government program side, because at that point, we were also looking at rolling out the Part D benefit which rolled out in 2006. And we started talking about me coming in-house and helping oversee the government programs and 
also overseeing their pharmacy benefit matters from an in-house perspective. And I think what in many ways prompted the move to me was I, I really wanted the opportunity to be part of a business, to get the perspective of what it means to be part of a corporation providing health care and what that perspective is in terms of the legal advice that you render, in terms of how the business is run, in terms of how you are perceived as a lawyer. So it was it was a move that, that was quite deliberate and one that I'm glad I made. I've spoken with a lot of GCs over the year who've told me that when they first made the move from law firm life to in-house counsel, they were worried. You know, they felt a little bit like frauds, like they didn't know how or if they would be successful in that role, primarily because when you work at a law firm, you have colleagues, you have associates, partners to rely on, whereas when you're the general counsel, you're it, right? The buck stops here. I'm curious, when you made that move, were, were you scared? Did you have those fears or did you go in with a sense of confidence and purpose? I think I went in with a sense of confidence. I mean, I was doing a lot of cutting edge work around the Part D program. I'd say I had less confidence around the Medicaid programs that I was overseeing and just the, the, you know, you're trying to bring together so many different pieces. But I think I had confidence in, in my abilities. What I don't think I was prepared for was just how different it is. The number of meetings that you attend the need to build consensus, the, the fact that you are, you know, you're not viewed as a revenue producer, your cost center. So from my perspective, I, I felt like I, I knew my work, but I have to admit I was a bit overwhelmed by the the structure and the administrative aspects of being in-house. Mm. That makes sense. That's interesting too. And then at some point you decided to come back to Mintz. And I'm curious, how did the years working in-house inform your role as outside counsel once you returned? You know, I've often said, not that I want our associates to do this because we need them, but I've often said that an in-house sabbatical should almost be required or viewed as a very positive thing. I came back to Mintz for a very unique opportunity. I was approached by the firm to come back and actually run the DC office, become the managing member of the DC office. And since one of the reasons I'd gone in house was the desire to take on more of a business role, I viewed this as a very unique business opportunity, which is that I would be helping run the business of law as an outside counsel. And so it was something that was very attractive and I realized really wouldn't present itself again. And, and so I I absolutely jumped at the opportunity. But I think when I came back, my perspective had changed. I understand much better now and, and try to instill this in, in those that I work with, that everything we're talking about and everything we're doing has to have a business purpose. And saying no isn't really helpful to the business, saying no but or you can't do it this way, but there may be other ways to do it, is, is a much better way to present. And sometimes it's a flat out no, but engaging in a dialogue about what they're trying to accomplish and if they could pivot a bit and maybe accomplish some of the same goals are very important. I also understand that, you know, expenses matter, costs matter. I've sat in their shoes setting up budgets for legal spend. So 
I think it provides a unique perspective that I've been able to build into my practice and also just building the office. I think the folks in the New York health section can completely relate to that. Not only are we the kings and queens of, no, you can't do that, but but as you know, most of the institutional providers and certainly the hospital systems are nonprofits, and so they're incredibly cost-conscious. Could you describe some of the challenges in your career that you faced and overcome or are perhaps still working to overcome? Obviously, you've been very successful from what we've heard. You, you definitely talked about a career trajectory that's very impressive, but I imagine you still had to face some challenges along the way. Yes. So first of all, when I came back to private practice, I had lost my clients. My clients had gone to other lawyers, other law firms. I had never really thought I would come back out to practice. And because of that, I didn't really have a book of business. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to rebuild that. And so that's obviously scarier than going in-house and shutting your clients. So I needed to look around see what the opportunities were, what my contacts were. And I was fortunate because there are people that I worked with in-house who, you know, I, I continued to obviously do a little work for United, but I found, and I'm, I'm very proud of this, that when lawyers would leave United, they would often call on me and say, hey, you may remember me, we worked together at United, I'd like to use you. And I even got one of those calls as recently as two months ago. And I have been gone from United, obviously, for a very long time. But this person went to another health plan and asked if I could assist. So, you know, that was daunting, but but it, it, it has definitely paid off. And quite honestly, I think my background in doing private equity deals and investments and my sort of understanding the business of those deals has helped as well in, in rebuilding that part of my practice. So you come back to Mintz, you've lost all your clients, and you spend the next few years building your practice back up. It's a unique success story, so I'm hoping you can share your insight into why you think women drop out of the legal profession at disproportionately higher rates than men. But before I ask that question, I want to know, what does gender equality mean to you? I think that gender equality has evolved over time. So, you know, I remember back when I was starting to practice and, and gender equality just meant women getting into the workforce in law firms. There weren't, there was some women in my law school class, not as many as now. So I, I think that it's become more common for women to be a large portion of the workforce at a law firm. And I would venture to guess the law firm that law school classes are probably almost fifty percent women. But I think what's evolved is it's not just equality; it's inclusion and advancement. So you may have an entering starting class of associates that's fifty percent women, but how many of those women actually succeed and become a partner at the law firm? And if they become a partner, how many of those women climb up the ranks in the partnership? So I think that it really has taken on a very different meaning. When I was at my law firm in New York, there were two women. And then a third came along. But out of, you know, 40 or 50 lawyers, that was it. Not the case now. So I think we need to focus more on advancement and inclusion. So let's go back to that all-important question. 
Why do you think women drop out of the legal profession at disproportionately higher rates than men? I think that in some ways it's traditional roles and a difficulty balancing parenting and being in a law firm. You know, law firms are very stressful environments. There's a lot expected of us, both by our clients and by the firm. So I think that that is some of it. Sometimes, and we're fortunate, I don't think we have this here at Mintz, but very often you don't see a path for advancement. You don't see how you will grab that brass ring, so to speak, because you don't see that many women ahead of you that have succeeded. I also think there's a sense that if you go in-house, for example, your job's going to be nine to five and it's just an easier life, work-life balance. I would just add to that, that our society and culture still hasn't normalized the role of the stay-at-home father, whereas women are either expected to be home or expected to take on more of the at-home responsibilities than their partners. One of Justice Ginsburg's most famous quotes is, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. I think it's fair to say that leadership matters and that no law firm can do well in developing and advancing talent including women and other diverse attorneys, without strong actions and commitments at the highest level. As a member of the firm's policy committee, what do you see as some of the most important initiatives for ensuring sustainable success with respect to an organization's diversity and inclusion efforts? I think we have to, and and I think I'm proud of the work we're doing, we can always do better, but I think we really have to pay attention to the details, pay attention to and analyze the data. We're lucky to have data. How are women included on pitch pitches? When you look at pitch material, we do this here. Are women included and how are they included in pitch materials? Are they being taken along? Mentoring and sponsorship. How do we ensure that women have a sounding board to say, you know, look, I'm struggling a bit. I don't know. You know, is it okay to say I'm not available from six to eight because I'm putting my kids to bed? How do they get those questions answered? We have a women's initiative here that tries to mentor women, get together with groups of women, have different forums and discussion roundtables around issues that are important to women. But I take my role as a mentor and a sponsor very seriously. How do I sponsor, how do I mentor junior associates? How do I sponsor those associates that I'd love to see make partner? And then how do I continue to see them come up the ranks? And a lot of that is is sharing my work with them, seeking them out to to work on my matters, sharing production, things of that sort. Mm. I I agree with that. I, I serve as a mentor, an official mentor for a few associates at the firm. And I can tell you, and I think this is where you're going, that there's actually a difference between mentorship and sponsorship. So I can mentor these associates and give them pointers, but if I don't work with them on a daily basis, I can't really be their sponsor. And I think they really need a sponsor. And I go out and I tell them to seek one out, find someone who will speak for you about you and tell other people how great you are who can address the work you do specifically and say, this person should be rising up through the ranks. Because a mentor can give you some pointers on that, but a sponsor, that's the person who I think is really going to push you over the threshold. I think that's absolutely correct. There is a difference. And not everyone you mentor are you willing to sponsor. Mentoring is sort of inward looking. Sponsorship is outward facing. 
And I think that it's important for women to find people they're comfortable having as mentors and find people that they want to sponsor them. Also, look around you, end up on a team where you feel that people will be invested in your success. All our practices have teams, uh, especially in healthcare. There's different areas of expertise. Find something you're passionate about, but then also, you know, find people to work with that really want to see you succeed and put you forward to succeed. Yes. And as a woman, I think that could be a man or a woman. I don't think you necessarily have to assign a man to a woman or vice versa, or only a woman to a woman. It could go, I think, anyway, as long as someone's willing to undertake that responsibility and really sees you as someone who they can promote, I think it's a perfect match right there. And my mentor was a man. And very early in my career, he took me to meetings with his clients. He told me how to present to clients succinctly. He gave me opportunities to be front and center. He tested me and pushed me into areas I wasn't comfortable with. And and I hope that I have done that for other lawyers, many times for women, but not just for women. I'm sure you have. And that's a good segue into my next question, (laughs) which is I wasn't actually able to find any statistics locally or nationally in in health law, but I could tell you that at Mints and just from doing some basic research, women make up nearly 70% of the practice group, meaning in health law. Half of them are partners and that's a significant number. And I, there were a few other large law firms that had similar numbers. Why do you think health law practices attract and retain female lawyers? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I will say that health law is sort of very detail-oriented, very cerebral in some ways, and, and maybe that's more attractive to women. I don't know. But <laughs> I, I think historically, at least, you know, health law is sort of like the pediatrics of medicine. It's regulatory analyses, medical staff matters, contracting. And I think that people thought, that women thought it was just an easier work-life balance, that you're not staying up all night doing deal documents or writing a brief for litigation. I don't necessarily think that's the case anymore, but I think at least historically women have felt they could control their schedules more, and that's accounted for a lot of the, you know, the skewing of so many women being in health law practices. I agree with that, but I'm actually going to agree with you more on the first part, which is that health law is cerebral. It is a challenge. It is something that's constantly evolving and changing and challenging. And I think women are really drawn to that. I'm not sure if you know this, but if you Google, as I have, Susan Burson, Mintz, What pops up is the title strategic healthcare advisor. What do those words mean to you and have they come to define your practice? I didn't know that until you told me, (laughs) but I I love it. I, I think that I have always tried to bring to my practice a legal answer in a business setting. And so I like to think about or advise my clients on what the laws are around a specific deal they may be looking at, but also what we're seeing on the policy side, whether or not there's a chance that the reimbursement will change in a way that could negatively impact the revenue, whether there's opportunities developing that could positively impact the revenue. 
So I always like to know the law, tell them the risks of not complying with the law, analyze different bumps and warts that any deal may have, but also get involved in why it may or may not be a good business decision, not usurping their knowledge as, as business men or women, but using my regulatory knowledge and policy expertise to say, here are some other things to think about. That is a great strategy for building client relationships. I want to end with this last question. What is your advice to other senior lawyers who are looking to be allies for women and other diverse attorneys so that they can advance? Keep them top of mind. I think that, you know, for, for attorneys that are producing attorneys that have client relationships, and we should just be doing this to reflect our client base. You know, I do this because I'm passionate about the area, but even if you're not that passionate, it's just good business. Think of women and diverse attorneys to be on your pitch team, to work on your matters. Give them the opportunities to advance because quite honestly, it aligns with our clients' interests and what our clients want to see and quite honestly, how our clients look. So I think that you just need to keep these issues top of mind and and just be allies. Think of development opportunities. Think of staffing and pitch opportunities but always keeping a top of mind. Thanks, Susan. And thank you so much for being here today. That brings us to the end of our show. If you have any questions about this or any prior episode, or you'd like to propose questions for the next episode, please email us at healthlawdiagnosed@mids.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you all back here in a couple of weeks. <laughs>